Okay, so starting uh, or continuing our statement of faith there in the beginning section where we're dealing with the scriptures, um, I'll go ahead and just sort of read this for us. This is the first statement in the statement of faith. We begin with the scriptures as we talked about last week because it's from the scriptures that we um, derive our authority to say anything meaningful about God or about his truth or about redemption. Um, <laughs> so I'll just read it here. The Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments in their original manuscripts being directly inspired by God and without error whatsoever are the only infallible authority for Christian truth and living. So last time we were together, we took the first part there, the Holy Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments in their original manuscripts. So um, last week we spent a, just a second looking at this this terminology of the Holy Scriptures. The Holy Scriptures is not something that we impose on the Bible. It's something that actually Paul himself says in Romans chapter 1. He speaks of the Holy Scriptures contained in, or in, in which is contained the, the, the testimony and predictions and prophecies about Jesus the Son. And, but Paul calls them Holy Scriptures. He calls them Holy Scriptures because there, is no other, there are no other Scriptures like the ones we have. They are wholly set apart, unique, um, and um, I love the, the phrase there, the Holy Scriptures. So what we have before us here are the Holy Scriptures, and they're made up of two testaments, old and new. And last week we looked a little bit about, or looked a little bit at the uh, view of Jesus as it regards the Old Testament Scriptures. And we saw that he, he believed and taught and lived in light of the fact that they were authoritative that they were uh, clear, that they were binding, not only on the life of everyone who reads them, but also on his own life. Um, these Old Testament scriptures are binding, and they are the Word of God. And he gives us some indicators as what he means by the Old Testament scriptures. He says the Psalms, the prophets, the, the Law of Moses, these kinds of things are synonymous with the scriptures. And it's also important to remember that when we're talking about the scriptures, we remember that Again, and this is so duh, but it's important to remember that we're talking about the written record of God's acts in history. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about the scriptures. Um, and it's important to know that it wasn't just the original preaching and oral transmission of these, uh, of these words of God, of these teachings of God, of the commandments, or, the, or the, the, the prophets preaching the word of God. It's the actual recording of those times of preaching, of those times of oral transmission that are also authoritative. Um, it's, it's so important to say that. It's not just the oracular preaching that is authoritative. It is the scriptures that record the, orac or the oracular preaching or the narrative or whatever. Um, and that's the, way Jesus, that's the way Jesus treated the Old Testament. We saw that in multiple places last week. Um, let's pick up in Luke 24 and we'll see some of these things Restated again, and then we'll, and that'll sort of conclude our demonstration that the Old Testament, from Jesus' perspective, are scripture, and then we'll look into a rationale of a New Testament canon as well. So if we look at Luke 24, verse 44, this of course is after Jesus has been raised from the dead, and he has now, um, appear, he is now appearing to multiple witnesses some of whom were, or most of whom I would say, were, were sort of 
dispirited and depressed because they thought that their hopes for the restoration of Israel were dashed. And then Jesus appears and shows himself, manifests himself to them um, for various reasons, one of which is just to, you know, establish eyewitness testimony as to the reality of his resurrection. Um, But what he does as he manifests himself to these several people in Luke 24 is to to sort of, in some ways, reprove them and teach them. Reprove them in the sense that these people are depressed and, hey, you should have known that the Son of Man was going to suffer and die and be buried and rise and and appear. Um, And they didn't. They were depressed. They they thought that that he was the one that was going to immediately conquer. Um, But he also then takes it upon himself not only to correct them or rebuke them in a sense, but he also teaches them what they should have known. And in verse 44, he, again, talking to his disciples, he's trying to prove to them, hey, it's really me, touch me, feel me, this is really me, I'm not a spirit. And then after he demonstrates physically that it really is him, verse 44, then he begins to look at or or highlight the fact that the Old Testament always said that I was going to die and rise again. And he says in verse 44, now he said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things." And so here's Jesus, and he, he mentions the law of Moses. We're talking five books, of the five, first five books of the Bible, the prophets, and the Psalms. And he, 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 he brings these up, and we can understand that they are synonymous with, in verse 45, the scriptures. So when he says scriptures, he means law of Moses, prophets, and Psalms. And the other thing we recognize here about these scriptures, Moses, prophets, and the Psalms, is that these things are things that must be fulfilled. There was an anticipation embedded in these Old Testament scriptures, an anticipation of fulfillment. And Jesus says that it was him who would come and fulfill these scriptures. And so what we're realizing, again, in another place is that the Old Testament scriptures were binding upon Jesus himself to fulfill them. And, um, you know, we don't have time to talk about all the ways in which he fulfills them, but the bottom line is he understands, as well as, I mean, the disciples should understand, that these, these psalms, these scriptures, these prophets were written and, and, and spoken, pointing to and connected with and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. And so... Um, he doesn't just say that the prophet one time said long time ago. He actually mentions the scriptures. The writings themselves are binding upon Jesus to fulfill them. Um, and we also, again, understand the main sort of content or goal or summation of Old Testament content is the predictions and prophecies of the life of Jesus. That all of these things were not written sort of by themselves and for themselves. The temple was not ultimately given for the Jewish nation. It was given for us. It was given to point and highlight and be connected to and fulfilled by Jesus Christ. The ultimate significance of the temple is Jesus, right? Not Jewish worship. Um, And so that's important to understand that the Old Testament is all, it exists 
It exists because of Jesus. It exists because of the new covenant era in which he brings and ushers in and inaugurates. That is the purpose of the Old Testament scriptures, to point to and, and, and give final and give content to and predict, anticipate the coming of Christ. And we can read about that in the scriptures. Other thing we understand is that the scriptures are only understood by divine revelation and illumination. Um, this, is, this is important. Verse 45, Luke tells us, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. There's an illumination going on here, and Jesus himself is the one who does that. It's good to know that, isn't it? It's good to know that. You want to understand the Bible? Who do you go to? You go to Jesus, right? Jesus loves to illumine the scriptures. He doesn't just drop new sort of abstract information in your head about him. He actually will, will, will illuminate texts for you. So you read Exodus 19, 20, 21. You've, you're puzzled as to some meaning and to some content. Go to Jesus. Say, Jesus, open my mind to understand the scriptures, right? Many of the, or, you know, a lot of the religious leaders were Bible scholars, the Sadducees, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, and yet they did not understand what they, what they read, what they copied, what they memorized from birth, right? And, um, and Jesus rebukes them for it. But the reality is, is that it's only if Jesus opens minds if we can understand the scriptures. And, um, and so that's, that's where we go for revelation and for illumination. Um, and also we have to understand that Jesus' words are also prophetic and authoritative. And this is where it starts to move us toward the New Testament. Jesus' words himself are also prophetic and authoritative. And that's why he says, verse 44, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. And then he goes on to say what those words are, verse 46, that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed. In other words, Jesus is saying, I predicted my own death, I predicted my own suffering, I predicted my own burial and resurrection and consequent proclamation of the gospel. I predicted all this, and so far all of it's coming to pass. And so Jesus wants us to understand his own words are predictive, prophetic, and authoritative, and we can bank on them. And um, of course, there's many places where we could demonstrate that. But that moves us into under, starting to, to grasp some sense of, of the need for more scriptures, right? Because Messiah has shown up on the scene in human history. You've got God's redemptive acts in the Old Testament history, many we could mention, and these acts were recorded. And they were recorded for future generations and for the current generation. And so it makes sense, doesn't it, that when the very one to whom these scriptures were pointing comes on the scene, it makes sense now that we would also have these mighty acts, but these mighty acts then interpreted for us and recorded and enshrined for us in a New Testament canon. That's the underlying premise of why we understand and have a New Testament canon. It's because Messiah is here. He is speaking. And we must, we must hear him. And we'll look at some of these passages together. So <clears throat> there were some texts in the Old Testament that sort of give us, give us insight in the fact that there will be additions to Old Testament canon. And I say that because the New Testament writers understood this particular text to highlight 
the fact and point to Jesus um, and the words and teachings that he would bring. So Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, you can listen on here as I read, where God is, um, <clears throat> God is here speaking through Moses. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says, from among you. So there's this future prophet, Moses-like, that will be raised up from among you. He'll be a Jew, right? He'll be a Jewish individual. Jesus says salvation is from the Jews. But there will be a prophet like Moses from among the Jewish nation, from your countrymen. And what shall you do with him? You shall listen to him. This is Deuteronomy 18. Yep, Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19. This is a very, very prominent passage in the New Testament. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see this great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, They have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth. Notice, they are God's words in the mouth of this prophet. And he shall speak to them all that I command him. And it shall be, and it shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And you can remember Jesus over and over and over saying that my words are not my words. Right? My words are the Father's words. Over and over and over, Jesus says this. Um, Jesus wants everyone to know that he comes in complete, um, in, in complete accordance with the will of his Father, the ones that the Jews called their God. And Jesus says, I've come to speak the words of, quote-unquote, your God. And this is what Deuteronomy 18 tells us. So the idea here in Deuteronomy 18 is that there's going to be another prophet like Moses. God's words will be in his mouth. And so here's sort of an Old Testament rationale for a future prophet. I mean, when you have a God-sanctioned prophet, of this caliber like Moses, then it would make sense that the, the, the teaching and the words that this prophet's going to speak should be recorded like Moses, right? That's sort of the underlying rationale here. And you can see when Jesus comes on the scene in Acts chapter 3, and we don't have time to go there, that the apostles say that this prophet is Jesus. And he, they quote Deuteronomy 18. So again, it would make sense that when Jesus comes on the scene in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, that, that his words would need to be enshrined. Um, and I was thinking of that, and then I was actually reading in Michael Kruger's book. If you don't have this, I do recommend it. It's called Canon Revisited by Michael Kruger. He wrote one uh, before this as well called The Question of Canon. Both are, are very good. Canon Revisited is, is, is really good because it gives a theological uh, rationale for canon, not just a historical rationale or a church history rationale or something like that, um, or a literary rationale. But this is, this is actually a theological rationale for why we have a canon at all. Um, but um, on page, I think it's 171, Kruger highlights and, and cites this prophet predicted in Deuteronomy 18 as um, certainly pointing to Jesus, but also undergirding a rationale for future, in, for future scripture. Let's see if I can find it here. Okay, yeah. So try to track with me here. Kruger says this, If early Christians came to believe that the actions of Jesus were the fulfillment of this long-awaited redemption of God, 
And if they were immersed in the Old Testament writings and the redemption revelation pattern that it contained, then it is only natural that they would expect a new revelational deposit to accompany that redemption. Indeed, if covenant documents were given to Israel after the deliverance from Egypt by Moses, how much more would early Christians expect that new covenant documents would be given to the church after deliverance from sin by one greater than Moses? And he cites Hebrews chapter 3. After all, Jesus was not just another prophet. He was an eschatological realization of all of redemptive history. He was the son of David. He was one greater than the temple, the mediator of a better covenant, and the perfect and final revelation of God. As Charles Hill notes, quote, if a new written corpus, talking about the New Testament scriptures, if, the new, if, a, if a new written corpus should arise with the claim of embodying the new revelation in the wake of a supremely important new redemptive act of God, this can hardly be called unnatural or wholly unanticipated. Thus, the New Testament canon exists because at its core, it is an eschatological canon. Um, and so, that's what they're saying. They're saying here that the New Testament writers have an impulse, and we're going to see why. Jesus wants them to remember what he taught. But Messiah comes in to fulfill Old Testament scriptures, and then it makes sense, doesn't it, that the things he teaches and his acts themselves are recorded and interpreted so that we can have, future generations can have an enshrined canon in the New Testament. Any, any questions on that? Now, it's interesting that Jesus comes in fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18, a prophet like Moses, right? That... that that when he comes, we must listen to him. And then you have at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, some of you remember that passage, at the transfiguration in Matthew 17, there's this, lots of things going on in that text, but the bottom line is, is it's, God's, it's God's testimony, it's heaven's testimony that this indeed is my son. Um, and, and that's a wonderful fact just in and of itself. But it's, this is my son who will supersede and replace now Elijah and Moses. So it's, this is my son, but you remember Moses and Elijah come there as well. They're all sort of standing there on the mountain. Peter's watching it all. And then all of a sudden, Elijah and Moses disappear. Jesus is the only one left standing. And God says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. And so there's, there's, some, there's some representation and, and symbolism, so to speak, going on there. Right? What we're finding out here in this transfiguration passage, as Moses and Elijah are there, they represent law and prophets, and Jesus becomes now, in this, in this event here, God is teaching that Jesus now becomes the one spokesman who now gives us clear revelation and understanding of all prior Old Testament revelation and the new covenant realities that they are pointing to. And so we must listen now to Jesus, okay? And that's the point, that Christ has come, he now is the one we listen to as it pertains to all prior Old Testament revelation. He is now the supreme spokesman. And this is what the writer of Hebrews says, that he has spoken to us in these last days in huio, in son. And that, and that passage is not only saying that he comes to bring a message, but he himself is the message. But that's another sermon. All right, so that's the transfiguration. We must listen to Jesus. And again, don't have time to go to all these passages trying to make some headway here. But I'm trying to give some sort of rationale as to why we've got more scripture other than the Old Testament, which is what the first century had. They just really, 
The first century Christians initially just had the Old Testament scriptures, but now we've got the Messiah. Jesus has come, and now we need to listen to him. And all the, all the clarity and understanding and revelation that he brings must be recorded and passed on. Now, Jesus, the problem, though, is that Jesus will be passing off the scene. Right? He, does, he works miracles and wonders and signs. And then, of course, the momentous event of his death, burial, and resurrection and, and appearance. But the reality is that he, he's, he's raised from the dead, um, but he doesn't stick around. He's only with them for another 50 days or so. And so the question then becomes, okay, um, Jesus is passing off the scene, but his words must be listened to and passed on. Well, how will this be? Right? How, how will this happen? If we're to listen to him, well, how do we get more than the first century listeners there to listen to him if he's leaving? And this is one of the main points of John 13 through 17, or, and really more 14 through 16. But um, this is, John 14 through 16, highlight this fact that Jesus is going to leave him physically, he's going to leave, and yet his words will be enshrined, preserved, and, re- and brought to remembrance in the minds of the apostles. And that's where we'll go next. So John 14, 25 through 26, this is the upper room discourse, although I don't know that they stay in the upper room for this whole discourse, but I can't remember some of those details off the moment, at the moment, but, um, but John 14, 25 through 26, Je- yeah, Jesus, as he's sitting here teaching him, he's trying to tell them, you know, look, I'm going to the Father, but you've seen the Father, and they're like, we don't understand, what do you mean, show us the Father, he's like, I've been with you, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and, um, and Jesus is saying, I'm going to go away and I'm going to send you a helper. And this helper is going to come. He's the spirit of truth. And he's the spirit of truth that will be with you. And so there's this, this sense in which that, what does Jesus say? I think Steve cited it last week that, that he says that the spirit is with you but will be in you. So there's a sense in which Jesus is saying, though I'm going away, we're actually going to be closer now. You know, because he'll be in you. You know, it's this sense where, and it's the spirit of Christ that comes. It's the spirit who comes to testify of him. And so the spirit is promised. And one of the blessings that the spirit brings to these early apostles is remembrance. So let's read verse 25 through 26. Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you. So they are things Jesus is speaking. Things that Jesus is speaking that should be understood things that must be perpetuated. But he says, these things I have spoken to you while abiding with you, but the Holy Spirit, I'm sorry, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Okay? So a couple things about this passage. Um. Jesus, like I said, he's, he's in this whole section of 14 through 16, he's talking about, I'm going to be going away. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I know this is confusing. Don't let your heart be troubled. Um, it's all going to turn out well. Holy Spirit's going to come and be your helper. I'm teaching a lot. I realize that. I'm going to send a helper that's going to come and bring these things to your remembrance. And so this whole passage, the tenor of it, is the disciples trying to coming to terms with the fact that he's leaving, and yet he's also going to send a helper 
personally that's going to reveal even more truth to them. Um, or, well, at least in this passage, it will be remembrance. Um, but the whole passage is, is just dripping with that sense of this anticipation of Jesus leaving. And so the question is, well, how am I going to remember all this stuff? You know, the apostles thinking, I, I have a sense that I've got to share this with the world. He said a lot. He did a lot. Matter of fact, John says he did so much that all the books in the world wouldn't be able to contain it all. And I've got to be able to pass this on. So how is that going to be possible? Well, verse 26, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So this is an amazing passage. One of the things that we realize first and foremost is that it's, it's, it's a, the Holy Spirit comes to bring about the things that Jesus taught. Remembrance, right? Remembrance are things already stated, right? If you remember something, it's because something happened in the past. And so the Holy Spirit comes to bring to their mind what they already heard, right? So this, this says a lot about the fact that Jesus' words and teachings and the Holy Spirit's, they're all together in this, right? The Holy Spirit is going to come and deliver the content that Jesus himself spoke into the minds of these early apostles. The Holy Spirit comes to bring about the things, or bring about remembrance for the things that Jesus spoke. And not just a few things, but all that I said to you. And I would think that he means all that I've, want you to remember, but all that I said to you. So that's quite a bit. It's not just a couple statements here and there. It's, it's all that I said to you. And, um, and so here, I think in, in a, there's a sense in which you have here a rationale for the four Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John here. And what are Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? Well, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the things Jesus said and taught and did. And they are the product, I think, of the Spirit's coming to bring about the remembrance in the minds of the early apostles so that they would write them down for us or at least help write them. Um, and that's why we have four Gospels. So that's pretty awesome. Matthew twenty four thirty five. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And so how is that possible? Well, it's possible because now we have inscripturated revelation that record Jesus' words for us. Right? That's at least one of the ways. Um, that they last forever. So the logic is, if, if, if Jesus' words will not pass away ever, well, then they must be present and authoritative now. And how? Well, through the written record of the apostles. Um, and um, what else? Um, I don't think this passage is primarily about individuals remembering Scripture, sort of, you know, you, you think that, you know, you're there and you sharing the gospel with someone, you know, all of a sudden have a, a sort of recall with the scriptures. I don't think that's the first point of this passage, but I still think it's valid to say. I mean, if the, if, if the Holy Spirit knows the content of Jesus' message and he deposits that into the minds of the early apostles, why can't he give a little bit of that now, right? We're not talking about new revelation, but we are talking about what Jesus taught and said. But I do think that primarily, though, he's talking to the apostles here, as those who would be the foundation of the church, that Jesus himself is going to ensure that he preserves his words through these spirit-inspired men. I think that's, I think that's the point. Um, and like I said, who will be the ones to perpetuate it? Will be the apostles. This was one of the main ways the New Testament church identified the true from false scripture. And Matt's gone through that a lot when we think about how the 
the cannon was um, identified. It's were they, uh, was it written by apostles or alongside of apostles? And um, so any, any questions on this? Again, giving a rationale for a New Testament canon from Scripture. These are not things, hopefully, that I'm importing. I'm trying to derive from the Bible, the Bible's own rationale, as to how we have Scripture beyond the Old Testament. All right, John 16. So we've, we've noticed here Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is going to come and bring things to remembrance. But what about future revelation? What about things beyond the Gospels? Well, John 16, 12, although just keep in mind that not only, just keep in mind that the Spirit not only came to give them remembrance, but he will also teach you all things, he says. So he not only brings to mind what Jesus said, but also how to teach what Jesus said. So to apply what Jesus said in all manner of ways as well. And I think that gives a rationale for future, like 1 Corinthians. It's scripture, right? It's teaching what Jesus said. Jesus said various things, and they need to be applied in these particular circumstances of the early church. Well, the Holy Spirit so works in these disciples to bring to remembrance the things Jesus taught, but then as situations come up to apply that teaching. And so we saw that in John 14. We'll also see it here in John 16, 12. He says again, bringing up the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's going to come. He's going to, verse 8, convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he explains that a little bit. And then he says, verse 12, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. Okay, so I have more things to say to you. So this is interesting. This is, this is, this is, this is Jesus saying, I'm about to die. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rise from the dead. And at some point after this moment that he's speaking now, he's going to speak even more things to them. Now, I don't think that that's primarily between his resurrection and ascension. Maybe some of it, maybe some of it. But the reason I think that it's probably not that is because he says in verse 13 that it's the Spirit who does it. So check it out, verse 13. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. And listen, for he will not speak on his own initiative. But whatever he hears, he will speak. So, so what you've got as Jesus ascends from heaven is, is his ongoing teaching ministry. He doesn't stop teaching, does he? He doesn't stop teaching. He actually continues to teach through the Holy Spirit. So there's some communication, some connection that Jesus has with the Holy Spirit after he has ascended to the right hand of God, where he's actually dictating, delivering content to the Spirit, and the Spirit is then delivering that content to the apostles, and the apostles then teach. That's how he speaks to us now. He does speak to us like that, yeah. But I, I do think that this is different in the sense that this is giving a, a foundational revelation for the New Testament, yeah. that the apostles have the Spirit guiding them to all truth. We have sort of a rationale for the Gospels with the Spirit bringing things to remembrance. But here's Jesus saying, there are things that I haven't even taught you yet that I'm going to teach you, and the Spirit's going to guide you into that. Okay? And so here's, here's sort of, again, another rationale for why you have Galatians or Hebrews or the Revelation of John or those kinds of things. Because Jesus is further elaborating and, and teaching further about who he is, 
what it means, how it applies to this and that. So any questions on any of this? Holy Spirit is is wonderful. Is He is the one that ensures it. And, and Peter picks up on this, right? Men moved by the Holy Spirit um, with words spoke from God. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, um, Acts 2, Peter stands up and he preaches. And, you know, Peter didn't get several things, you know, before... Uh, before Pentecost, there were lots of things he just didn't quite get. And yet at Pentecost, he just totally nails it. Um, what's going on? Well, John 16, 13. Um, and, and so, and of course, that was a preaching event, but it also was a, when he, an event that was had eyewitnesses to it and one that would be recorded for us. And um, yeah, and so here's the rationale for that. And so as we think about Jesus saying that I'm going to send the Spirit, he'll bring things to remembrance, and then he'll also lead you into truth, then of course, then do we have anything in the New Testament that indicates that the apostles indeed were these, these sort of uh, preservers and perpetuators of the teachings of Jesus? Well, of course we do, because they are called the foundation. So Ephesians 2.20 um, of course, we could go to Jesus telling Peter that on this rock I will build my church. And I do think that that's talking about Peter and the apostles. Certainly not in a Catholic sense. Um, but in the sense that he is he is there as sort of the first um, spokesman for the, the truth and the birth of the church upon which um, the rest of church history would sort of build upon that revelation. So Ephesians 2.20. Okay. Lots, lots in here, lots, lots and lots could be said here. But let's look at verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. This is talking about Paul speaking to the Ephesians, many of whom were Gentiles. But he says, But you are fellow citizens with the saints. And are of God's household. So both Jew and Gentile together here, Paul is saying. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Okay, so Paul views... Jesus, of course, is the cornerstone. This harkens back, excuse me, to many Old Testament passages on this stone. Remember Psalm 118, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. He's the most important stone in this whole new structure of God's house. And this is Jesus himself and his work. Um, this is how he becomes the cornerstone. But then the apostles are also a part of this foundation in which the cornerstone is laid. The, the apostles are these sort of these original pioneer um, uh, speakers and um, and witnesses to um, to God's revelation in Christ, and so they are here said to be the foundation. And um, the apostles are the foundation. Well, so what? In what sense are they the foundation? Well, when you think of a foundation, you think of that, that a foundation is something that is built first in a structure, and it's something that remains after the structure is built. Otherwise, you don't have the structure anymore. And so we don't have apostles that are 2,000 years old, right? That's not what we have. But they remain to be a foundation. 
They remain to be a foundation. Um, and so we can certainly think of the fact that they were the first ones to preach the gospel and to, and to promulgate the truth. That's true. Um, but they are still the foundation now just as much then. Well, how so? Well, because of uh, their letters, because of their inscripturated teaching. So the early preaching was foundational, but also the ongoing record of their preaching and teaching and, and, and their, the copies of their letters also contribute to the fact that it's foundational. And, um, and so their teaching is preserved through their writings um, upon which the household of God is continually built. Um, it's true that the apostles began to spread the word entrusted to them by oral preaching, but it would become clear that if the gospel were to go to the ends of the earth with some enshrined boundary preserving what is gospel truth versus what isn't, they would need to have written letters to preserve and spread this truth abroad. You would need something to say, what does the Lord say? Right? And after a while, or you know, oral transmission is just risky. And so God enshrines, just like he does for the Old Testament, an inscripturated revelation for that. So again... Um, I think I've got a good quote here from Kruger as well, illustrating this um, on one, 180. Let's see here. Let's see if this is it. Yeah. In addition, he says, and he's, he's here giving a rationale for apostles and their writings being authoritative New Testament canon. He says, in addition, we will do well to remember that the apostles functioned within the backdrop of Old Testament covenantal patterns that suggested that the inauguration of a new covenant would be accompanied by new written covenantal documents, given that they understood the redemptive work of Jesus as the inauguration of the new covenant and viewed themselves as ministers of a new covenant, it would have been quite natural to pass along the apostolic message through the medium of the written word. That's not what I meant to write, or meant to read. Sorry, that's a great statement, but that's not what I meant to read. Sorry. Let me, let me start here. Sorry about that. That's what I that's what I get for underlining. Okay, here here we go. As the church continued to spread throughout the world into further geographic regions, it would have become evident that the apostolic tradition could only be effectively communicated and accurately maintained in written form. Obviously, the apostles were not able to provide personal attention to every church within the ever expanding range of missionary influence. Moreover, their limited lifespans made it clear that they could never bring the apostolic message to the ends of the earth in person, but would need a way to preserve it for future generations. Thus, the role of the apostles as foundation layers of the church would have led them to make sure their message was preserved in a more permanent form, making its inscripturation a virtual inevitability. One is reminded of how, how Isaiah is exhorted. And this is Isaiah 30, verse 8. He says, And now go... God says to Isaiah, and now go, write it before them on a tablet and inscribe it in a book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. I love that. God, Isaiah 30, verse 8. Inscribe it in a book that it might be a witness forever. Now, 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3. Continue to see that the New Testament canon, or the New Testament here, understood the apostles as critical in terms of their teaching as the foundation of the church, enshrining the truth. 
2 Peter 3, verse 1. Peter says this, This is now, beloved, the second letter I am writing to you, in which I am stirring your sincere mind, stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder. So Peter says, I know that my letter is going to stir you up. It's going to stir you up because I'm writing things to you that you already know. I'm reminding you. And what is he reminding them of? Verse 2, that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. So we're talking probably Old Testament there, I'm thinking. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior by your apostles. So just think of that. He's saying, Peter said, you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets. So think Isaiah, Daniel, Malachi, Micah. And the commandment of the Lord and Savior. Well, that's Jesus. But how how does that come to us? Well, by your apostles. The apostles perpetuate the commandment of the Lord and Savior, and they do it in a way that apparently they can remember. So these letters given in the first century by these apostles afford the people the ability to call to mind. Not that everyone had a New Testament scroll or something like that, but many many had truth. Many had letters circulating. Copies were going, were being were being made like crazy. And so Peter is saying that you've got the apostolic writings, and insofar as you do, bring these to your remembrance. And remember, they are on par with Jesus and the and the prophets. The apostles are on par with the prophets. It's amazing. Um, so Peter has a conscious sense that he is writing authoritatively on par with the prophets and his words. Uh, And Peter's words are the commandment of the Lord Jesus. Therefore, we must understand that the apostles knew they would be the foundation layers of the church. I'm not saying that the apostles knew that there were going to be 27 books. okay? But it was not also surprising to them at all that they were writing authoritative um, tradition that was linked to and connected with the teaching of Jesus or the commandment of Jesus that he says here. They knew that we must have a written record so that we could read, and that generation could read, call to mind at any time to be stirred up in these things. Now go to verse 14 through 16, and then we'll be, then we'll be done. This passage is gripping for many reasons. But he talks about the new heavens, new earth that will be established after God burns up this current, this current creation. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, that is, since you look for a new heavens, new earth to be established, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So this is the time of salvation. Just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So Paul's letters were, were, were already well known, not only to Peter, but to those to whom Peter is writing. So you you see that our beloved brother, Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you. So these people also knew about Paul's letters. Okay. And Paul is writing about this salvation that's happening right now, according to the wisdom given to him. Verse 16, as also in all his letters. So we're not talking about just one letter of Paul. 
We're talking about a, a corpus of letters, a collection of Paul's letters that they would have known about in some way, um, speaking in, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. So Peter recognizes, okay, some of the things Paul writes are hard to understand. So there's a category for that in the Bible, right? Well, does it mean because it's hard to understand? Well, therefore, we have an out. We can just say, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to try, you know, or it's just sort of up for grabs in terms, of its, in terms of its meaning and interpretation. Well, no. Look what Peter says. These things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort. So these things that, so, so just because it's hard to understand doesn't give you an out to not get it right, <laughs> right? He says the untaught and unstable distort. And we think, wait a minute, these guys are untaught. So, I mean, how can you hold them accountable? And Peter says, look, they need to take seriously what their job is. They're there to teach the word of God. And these things might be hard to understand, but you need to give due diligence to understand them by God's grace, and you can. And if you don't, and you distort them, it could lead to your own destruction. This passage has always been a goad to me when I think about preaching because we want to make sure that we get it right and not distort it. Um, there's, there's a lot said here um, about this whole reality. You know, in our culture, in our generation, it's like, well, we have four views on this and five views on this and six views on this as if everything is up for grabs. And Peter says, look, I understand there's some things hard. And, what I've, and Peter says, what I've noticed is that the untaught and unstable... Um, they distort them to their own destruction. And so we shouldn't do that. And he's probably talking about, who knows? I mean, Romans 9 through 11, I don't know. Um, who, who knows? But some of the things Paul writes, he says, are hard to understand. Make sure you don't distort them. But listen to this. He says, they distort the hard things, but they do the rest of the scriptures as well to their own destruction. Now, when he says the rest of the scriptures... He's, he's saying that there, there is scripture, and then there's the rest of the scriptures. Well, what scripture, what's the scripture he has in mind first? Well, he's got Paul's letters in mind. And he's got Paul's letters in mind here, and then the rest of the scripture. So he lumps in Paul and his letters with scripture. So this was something that was well known in the early church. Um. So all Paul's letters, at least this collection that he would have understood, um, were scripture. We're already regarded in the first century. This is not something that the church over history created. We did not create um, or invent a New Testament inscripturated canon. This is something already given in the New Testament. There's other places too we can go to. But the apostles like Peter was conscious of it. The early church was conscious of it, and um, and so we have good reason um, to 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 believe the fact that this is God's intention to give us a New Testament canon. There's a lot more. Yeah, Matt. Right. They are foundational. Yep. yep. They are foundational and repeatable. You don't have three foundations in a house. You just have one. And yeah, it's it's vital to know. But it's it's also it's it's just good to remember though that what do you hear out there in the world? What you hear out there in the world is. Well, the ch by some councils, you know, the church came up with what they thought was in the canon. And I think it was J.I. Packer who said that, um, that we receive the canon from the early church the way that Isaac Newton received the law of gravity. You know, that in the sense that um, Isaac Newton discovered it, right? The early church discovered the canon. 
that it was something that God has already put his stamp on and, and commended to the early church. And that canon created the church. The church did not create the canon. And that's important to, to recognize. So, all right, it is late. I cannot believe time goes by so fast. All right, let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I just pray that whatever was clear, Lord, that you would um, bring home and make stick in the minds and hearts of my brothers and sisters here. And Father, I just pray that you continue to give us great encouragement that we have your very words, your, your, uh, your uh, inspired divine writings in our hands. Lord, help us, as Jesus says, to take care how we listen to them. Um, because we know that to whom has, more shall be given. What an awesome reality, Lord, that we will understand and go deeper with you more and more as we give heed to what you've said. And Lord, this morning we pray that, that you would help us to understand what you have said and to be with our brother Steve as he brings your word, that you would renew our minds and encourage us. And, um, and Lord Jesus, that you would reign supreme in our minds and hearts. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.